Well, it's good to be here this morning. I've never been to a Montana Bible College chapel, so what a privilege to be here um, singing with you and just seeing your culture here at Montana Bible College. So um, since I'm a school librarian, I often get to tell stories to my students, especially my younger students, so I hope you don't mind that I'm here to tell you a story today. We won't snuggle up with blankets and teddy bears or anything, but um, college students still like stories, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> the story I'm gonna tell you is a cardiology story. It's a story about the heart, not the blood-pumping organ inside our bodies, but the spiritual heart, the inner man, who we are inside. And this story is my own, um, about my own heart, and it has four chapters. We work in here, okay. Chapter one, why I needed a new heart. Chapter two, how I received a new heart. Chapter three, what my new heart is like. And chapter four, how I take care of my new heart. Now, usually when you open up a book, um, there are some pages before you get to the real story. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like the copyright page. So those pages you usually skip over to get to the real story. Um, it's called the front matter and um, it includes the copyright page, preface, introduction, prologue, um, and you usually skip over those to get to the main part that you want to read. But since I'm a librarian, I pay attention to the front matter. Um, reading those pages can help you quickly evaluate a book, and um, sometimes there are nuggets of information that um, lend important insight and depth to the story. So if you don't mind, I'm going to give you a little front matter. Um, before I get to the main part of the story, and I will try and make it kind of painless for you. <laughs> for our prologue, um, I need to tell you a little bit about the human heart. Um, there are three things you need to know, where it came from, its purpose, and what it is. The human heart, where it came from. The human heart, the spiritual heart, was crafted by a designer God. The Bible tells us this in Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. The use of the plural here in this verse, us and our, denotes the entire, that the entire Godhead is speaking. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Collectively, the Godhead created everything. And collectively, the Godhead willed to make man according to his own image. Perhaps you've heard the term imago Dei. It's a Latin term that means in the image of God. And mankind was crafted imago Dei, in the image of the Godhead. The Hebrew words for image and likeness in these verses just mean like manner or representative figure. That man was created in God's image doesn't mean that we are exactly like him, like in our physical makeup, that we have hands and, and feet and arms and legs. Um, but it does mean that we are like him in our immaterial nature, our makeup, the inner man or the heart. Simply put, we, like him, have a capacity for reason, that is thinking, and volition, choice, and also for emotion, passion, and the ability to feel. The Godhead thinks, chooses, and feels, and he created mankind in the same way, Imago Dei. So that's where the human heart came from. It was created by God in his image and his likeness. And he created it for a specific purpose. God tells us about this purpose in Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who is called by my name, 
whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Human beings were crafted for God's glory. Now, all of creation was crafted for God's glory. Um, the mountains, the seas, these beautiful fall colors that we're seeing. But mankind in particular was created with a unique ability to reflect God's glory. To glorify God means just to recognize or esteem him for who he is, and the opposite is dishonor or shame. Since mankind was created as a representative figure of God with his resemblance, we have a specific purpose to put him on display. And the most prominent way that we do this is by being like him. That is manifesting his character and his attributes in our own lives. Attributes such as his kindness, goodness, gentleness, love, and joy. And we are like him, we glorify him, and that's our purpose. So now that we know uh, where the human heart came from and its purpose, let's find out exactly what it is, a definition, if you will. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew transliteration for the word heart is lab, and it specifies the totality of man's immaterial nature. It includes our beliefs, perception, volition, thinking, intentions, and emotions. In the New Testament, the Greek transliteration for the word heart communicates the same meaning. Um, this word is cardia, and it refers to thoughts, reasonings, understanding, will, and judgment. It's the affective center of our being, and it's the seat of the will, the desires, our feelings, affections, and passions. And by the way, that's why I spell cardiology with a K instead of a C, how we normally might see it. Um, these definitions of the heart do not refer to the physical body. The um, Bible calls our physical body the outer man, um, but the heart refers to the inner man. Now, to illustrate and summarize the Greek and Hebrew definitions of the heart, we can say that the heart basically has three components. The thoughts, desires, and emotions, as you can see in this illustration. Um, the thoughts are the intellectual reasoning part of the heart, where we contemplate, perceive, and make judgments. Thoughts are also called beliefs, views, understanding, perceptions. Desires are the volitional component of the heart that ignite choice. Desires are also called intentions, motivations, or the will. Emotions are that part of the heart where passion and feeling and sentiment stir and inspire. Emotions are also called feelings or affections. Thoughts, desires, and emotions are not one and the same. They are distinct components of the heart. But each of these parts is interconnected, as this illustration shows by the arrows. And what that means is that our thoughts instruct our desires and our feelings. Our desires direct both our thoughts and emotions. And our emotions enlighten our thoughts and desires. And the interaction among those thoughts, desires, and emotions takes place rapidly in our hearts throughout every moment of our lives. Further, the Bible tells us that all of our life comes from our, our hearts. I think I need a new little... There we go. Comes from our hearts. Our words, our actions, our countenance, our body language, they all come from the heart. Jesus taught this when he said, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
And Proverbs 27, 19 says, As in water, faith reveals faith, so a man's heart reveals the man. So just as you would look into a body of water and see your reflection, it's reflecting you, the heart reflects the man. So now we know that our, the human heart is our um, inner person, the thoughts, desires, and emotions from which we live all of life. We know that the human heart was created in the image of God, and it was created for a specific purpose, to glorify him by reflecting his image. So that was our prologue. You okay with that? It wasn't too painful, was it? Okay, let's begin our story. Chapter 1, Why I Needed a New Heart. When I was young, I didn't know much about the Bible. I wasn't raised in a home that taught the truth of Scripture. I did acknowledge that there was a God, but I was completely unaware that I was created to glorify Him and that that was my purpose. I was about seven or eight years old, when I remember lying awake in bed at night, just thinking, replaying wrong things I had done, lying to my parents, disobeying them, stealing candy from the cupboard, and becoming angry when I didn't get my way. I felt guilty and ashamed, and I could not shake the persistent thoughts that accused me. So I tried hard to think of something else, um, anything that would distract me from the guilt within, Sometimes I was successful, able to fall asleep in peace, and other times it didn't work and I would finally succumb to sleep, still absorbed in my guilty thoughts. The next night was the same battle, night after night, guilt, shame, and new acts of wrongdoing to replay. Many years later, I would learn that God called my wrongdoing sin. The word sin in the Bible means to miss a mark, uh, to miss a target, to come up short, uh, this word is used when an archer's shot was off target. Some of you bow hunters out there can relate to that. Um, even as a young person, I knew that I had missed the mark of something. And the target I had missed is the person of God. Sin is an offense to God that misses the mark of the excellence of his person. God is righteous, good, kind, loving, merciful, wise, patient, and more, and these attributes are not what characterized me. Um, nor do they characterize any of mankind. And the reason these attributes don't characterize mankind is because the very first people who were created, Adam and Eve, chose to disobey a very simple command from God. And the consequences of their disobedience was spiritual death, as well as God's judgment and condemnation. And those consequences spread to all of mankind. Sin has so permeated the human heart that God says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And because of my sinful, wicked heart, I deserve death and eternal punishment from God's wrath. Romans 6.23a says, for the wages of sin is death. So although I was created for God's glory, I fell terribly short of that target and did not reflect his glory, didn't reflect his perfect image and person. Instead, I reflected the image of broken and fallen mankind. Like the rest of mankind, I had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This illustration depicts my heart at that time, a heart that was full of sinful thoughts, sinful desires, and sinful emotions as well as the overflow of my heart, sinful words, actions, countenance, and body language. 
And that's why I needed a new heart, which brings us to chapter two, how I received a new heart. In high school, I began attending church with some friends and heard teaching from the Bible. I totally recognized that my life was not acceptable to God, but I didn't know how to talk to him, and I didn't know how to make my life right with him. I didn't know at that time that God had a plan to save mankind and give man a new heart. Although sin has totally devastated the human heart, God has an answer for sin and its consequences. His answer isn't a quick fix, and it isn't a duct tape repair job. He doesn't just whitewash our black hearts. Instead, God made a way for us to have a new and a clean heart. God's amazing solution grants total forgiveness of our sins, a complete release from sin's eternal consequences, and a thorough transformation of our hearts. He promised this new heart in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. Now, this promise was originally spoken to Israel, but it's reiterated in the New Testament for us. It says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my judgments, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Incredibly, God's plan to save mankind and give us a new heart was for Jesus the Son to become human, born as an infant, 100% man and 100% God. Jesus grew from a nursing baby into a man, and in his humanness, Jesus never sinned. He never disobeyed or disbelieved or doubted. As a man, he reflected and glorified God by displaying his character and attributes. Although Jesus did not sin, God's design necessitated that he be put to death. And the night before Jesus' death, he proclaimed that his blood was the fulfillment of the new covenant, covenant, the promise of the new heart. He said his blood would be shed for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. And the next day he was put on a cross, and it was there that God punished him for all of the sins of mankind. Three days after dying on the cross, Jesus came back to life. He had defeated sin and death by his sinless life, excruciating suffering, and his glorious resurrection. I vividly remember when I learned about God's plan to save man from sin. Um, I was at Bible camp up at CBARN, or MWSB, as some of you have attended up there, and the camp speaker gave a message and an invitation for campers to accept God's free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. When he was finished speaking, I stayed inside the chapel, and Ray Gossick, who's now my husband, explained more fully how I could accept Christ's forgiveness for my sin. Ray assisted me as I spoke a simple prayer, confessing my sin and asking forgiveness through Jesus' shed blood on the cross. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart, one believes to righteousness, and with a mouth, confession is made to salvation. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The night I confessed my sin to God and asked Jesus to save me from the consequences of my sin was a stark contrast to previous nights when I was overcome by guilt and shame. 
Instead, I was overwhelmed by God's joy and his peace. Um, even though I really didn't know the spiritual ramifications of my decision to accept God's gift of salvation, I knew I was forgiven of my sin and that a significant change had taken place in my heart. And I now understand that this was the time when I received a new and clean heart. Which brings us to chapter 3, what my new heart is like. The Ezekiel passage describes the old heart as hard and stony. This description portrays the stiff and unyielding nature of sinful mankind. From birth, our hearts are wicked and unbending to the ways of God. We were dead in sin and slaves to sin. But the new heart is described as a heart of flesh, soft and pliable. The new heart is washed, it is clean and pure and alive. And remarkably, the new heart is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, God himself. And we are given the divine power to obey God. The image-bearing capacity that was once marred, marred by sin has been restored by God. Indeed, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. My new heart has the supernatural capability to produce the righteous fruit of the Spirit. Love, patience, kindness, gentleness. And this fruit displays the character and attributes of God himself, and that gives him glory, which is our creative purpose. But this doesn't happen automatically. I have a responsibility in regard to my new heart. I need to care for it, which brings us to chapter 4, how I take care of my new heart. Now that I have a new heart, I need to guard it from sin. And I didn't realize this until I'd been saved from my sin for about 12 years. Um, at that time, I wasn't aware that sin was the enemy of my heart. I had a mistaken notion that my new life in Christ was about attending church, trying to be a good example, and doing the right thing. I didn't realize that it was all about having a restored relationship with God, and that I had a responsibility to nurture this relationship by guarding my new heart from sin. Around this time, I was in a Bible study where the doctrine of the heart and the wisdom of heart-keeping were taught. I recall being struck with the teaching that we live from our hearts. I really didn't know that before. I knew that what I was portraying on the outside was not consistent with what was on the inside. While I was living my life trying to do the right thing, my heart attitude was often not right. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Everything we say and everything we do comes from our hearts. And through this study, I recognized that I was not glorifying God by diligently keeping my heart. The Hebrew word for keep and diligence in this verse are almost synonyms. These words mean to guard, protect, watch over, or inspect. And these words communicate that heart-keeping is a direct and an ongoing command. Used together, these words emphasize the importance of heart-keeping. It's as if Solomon, the author, says, guard your heart with all guarding. Through my studies, I discovered that I was not being a cardiologist, someone who glorifies God by diligently guarding his or her heart. I'm not sure how I missed these things before that time, but I sure heard them then loud and clear. And it was time for me to start obeying God's command to guard my heart. 
Heart keeping is all about cultivating a relationship with God. It's not a list of do's, and it's not a list of don'ts. It doesn't mean holding to certain creeds or doctrines. It's not ritualistic, it's not habitual, and it cannot be reduced to rote procedures. It's not a duty, and it's not an obligation. It's not about doing good works, lawful deeds, or trying to do the right thing. Heart keeping is entirely relational because our lives are fused into an <coughs> eternal bond with the triune Godhead, and the ultimate purpose of our heart keeping is to glorify God. Remember, we were created in God's image to glorify Him, and as new-hearted image bearers, guarding our hearts is a means to glorify Him. As we strive to glorify God by heart keeping, you should know that the task is not ours alone. It is a dual role process. Our efforts are coupled with God's work in us. And all three members of the Godhead are involved in this process. And yet there are commands for us to do our part. Heart keeping involves the work of the Holy Spirit, the word of God, the body of Christ, our obedient faith, and diligent heart examination. What I mean by heart examination is simply paying attention to the thoughts, desires, and feelings in our hearts so that we can detect our enemy, sin, at its earliest inception. We must continually be on the lookout for sin, searching our hearts for its presence. Even though we've received a new and clean heart, it still needs to be guarded from sin. Heart examination can be explained as a two-step process. The first is acknowledging our sin, and the second is to confess our sin as an offense to God. To acknowledge our sin means to specifically identify our sinful words, actions, and countenance, and body language, as well as our thoughts, desires, and emotions, and labeling them as God labels them. In Psalm 51.3, David said, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Asking the Lord to search our hearts is a way for us to identify our sin. But merely acknowledging our sin is not enough. We must also confess our sin. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Confessing our sin merely means to speak it out or declaring it to God rather than hiding it or concealing it. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I recall that when I was first learning about heart keeping, I didn't have a clue what was going on in my heart. I hadn't really examined it before, and quite frankly, I didn't know how. Um, I do remember a friend telling me to check into my thought life. That's what she said. And the funny thing is, is that I clearly remember thinking, what do you mean? I'm not thinking. <laughs> But then I started praying Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And once I started checking into my thought life, I was shocked to find out I was thinking. <laughs> in fact, there were all kinds of thoughts and desires and feelings in my heart, and many, or really perhaps most of them, sinful and I had been negligent to even notice them. When we allow sin to dwell in our hearts, it grieves the Holy Spirit who is dwelling there along with that sin, and it squelches his power 
to bear righteous fruit in our lives. You know, I don't know if this is the best way to illustrate the grieving of the Holy Spirit, but I just did my best here. Um, as you can see, the Spirit doesn't, nor will He ever, leave our hearts, but His indwelling power is quenched by our sin, and the overflow of our hearts follows suit, as you can see. When I saw the importance of heart examination as one of the primary aspects of heart keeping, I developed some tools, if you will, to help me examine my heart on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. And one of these tools is just a scripture meditation system with some cards in it just to help me see my sin. By using the heart-keeping tools and asking the Lord to search my heart, I began to see the plethora of sin. Day after day, I was shocked and appalled to recognize what I had not previously noticed. Most notably, I was characterized by anger. As a biblical definition, anger occurs when our desires, whether righteous or unrighteous, have not been met. The loss of these desires causes a grievous displeasure that can be manifested in various ways. Although anger can be righteous, most often we have and thus display unrighteous anger. Anger is usually accompanied by pride and selfishness. And previously I would have said that I just had a bad attitude. I was grumpy irritated, frustrated, or just bummed out. But God calls what was in my heart anger. Also notably in my heart was pride. Pride is likely the foundation of all other sins. It's a high view of our own worth, opinions, and abilities. It's a self-worship in which we exalt ourselves above God's person and purposes. Pride is also a sin against people because it is a failure to love and to serve them. Pride says things like, I have a right to, or my way is always right, and others are wrong. Another sin that permeated my heart was fear of man. Fear of man is the anxiety of being rejected. It's when we strive to gain favor and acceptance from others or are overly concerned about what others think of us. Fear of man is a self-serving and self-exalting pride which robs the glory which is God's alone. When we fear man, we're more concerned with what others think um, than doing what God says is right. It's a pleasing people so they like you, and it's a desire for attention and recognition from others. These weren't the only sins in my heart. I was stacking up anxiety, bitterness, despair, envy, fear, greed, guile, laziness, and selfishness. These were all part of my character because they were in my heart. And they were in my heart because I was failing to guard my heart from them. I have to say that I was overwhelmed to recognize the plethora of sin in my heart. I think what amazed me the most is that these sins popped up pretty much everywhere. I was prideful with my husband, my children, my friends, and with coworkers. I was selfish at home, at church, and at work. I was angry in little situations and big situations. These roots were an unseen network of tentacles, unnoticed by me, but I'm sure noticed by others, that grasped and strangled every part of my being and all facets of my life. God knew they were there all the time. I'd only needed to acknowledge and confess them to him. As I grew in the heart examination process, I discovered that some of the same sins were constantly tripping me up, and I just couldn't seem to get a grip on them. 
It was then that I discovered that my sin had a direct connection with what I believed about God. So I began to study his character. And I wrote attribute cards that would fit into my scripture meditation system, 31 of them, one for each day of the month, so that I could constantly meditate on the person of God. And through my studies and meditations, I found that my knowledge of and trust in God's character, or lack thereof, directly influenced my ability to guard my heart from sin. When I didn't trust in or delight in God's character, my heart was full of pride, selfishness, anger, and so were my words, actions, body language, countenance. As an example, two of the most prominent attributes that I failed to trust and delight in were God's goodness and his sovereignty. When I failed to believe that God is sovereign, that he rules the entire universe, his perfect plans and purposes are always accomplished and can never be thwarted by anyone or anything, including evil. When I failed to believe that God is sovereign, I viewed my life circumstances as out of control. That led to fear, anxiety, and anger. And so I looked for ways to protect myself from what I saw as undesirable circumstances that I thought had nothing to do with God's good plan for my life. Failing to believe that God is good, that his nature and essence are entirely good, and that he always acts in accordance with his goodness, and that his works are always beneficial for his creation. Failing to believe in God's goodness led to manipulative efforts of self-protection, and this often left to con led to conflicts with other people. <coughs> I was wrongly striving to be the sovereign and good God, rather than trusting and delighting in those aspects of his character. I had unknowingly erected lies in my heart against God, strongholds and arguments that misrepresented his character and his attributes. My own slanderous views of the Godhead were high and lifted up against the true knowledge of God. And of course, my words, actions, countenance, and body language revealed this unbelief, for out of the heart we live. And through faith in God's word, I was able to acknowledge and confess my lack of trust and delight in his person and grow in my relationship with him. And you won't be surprised to know that this growth permeated every area of my life, acknowledging and confessing my doubt and disbelief in God's character, as well as my newfound trust in his person and delight in him, infiltrated every aspect of my life just as my wrong view of him had. The Spirit was now free to produce in me righteous words, actions, countenance, body language, the fruit of the Spirit, such as meekness. It's also translated gentleness, and it's primarily a response to God. It's a state of heart that not only acknowledges God's sovereign rule, but embraces his sovereign rule as good. With meekness, we do not blame God for undesirable circumstances, nor do we become angry when we do not get our way. And humility. Humility is an accurate esteeming of ourselves before God and man. It's the recognition of being unworthy to receive God's grace and mercy. A humble person is characterized by acknowledging and confessing sin, as well as willing submission to the word of God, God's sovereign plans, and God-given human authority. Humility lays down any perceived rights, 
plans or desires. And also joy. Joy is the gladness of heart produced by the Holy Spirit. It permeates our disposition despite trial, heartache, or pain. It's an attitude of spirit that is fixed upon eternal glories and heavenly blessings so much that the sorrows of earth do not cause our soul to despair. But not only those, the spirit was free to produce other fruit, such as faithfulness, fear of God, goodness, kindness, love, patience, self-control, and thankfulness. It's finally learning to be a cardiologist, guarding my heart from sin, as a new-hearted image bearer. Now, being a cardiologist is not a one-time endeavor. It's not a phase of life where you get your act together. Um, and you don't ever arrive as a cardiologist because it's a non-stop, continual process of cultivating a relationship with Christ so that you can glorify him by being like him. So that's my cardiology story, why I needed a new heart, how I received a new heart, what my new heart is like, and how I take care of my new heart. You should know that you're receiving the abridged version, abridged version of a cardiology story today. If you'd like to read the full story and find out more about the spiritual heart and how to diligently guard it, then you can pick up the Bible study that I recently finished writing called Cardiology 101, How to Guard Your Heart. Um, it's available in the Resource Center downstairs. Perhaps it's time for you to begin your own cardiology story. Maybe you've never received a new heart and would now like to accept God's gift of salvation. I'd love to chat with you about that. Um, or maybe you do have a new heart and you've been grieving the indwelling Holy Spirit due to not guarding your heart from sin. Either way, uh, my prayer is that the Lord would use this Bible study and what I've said today to encourage you to grow into a cardiologist, someone who glorifies God by diligently guarding his or her heart. Thanks for having me here today.